All right, it's the time that everybody remembers of their uh, spring breaks and vacations. It's that like last week where you're like, oh. I have to go back to reality. But it is one more week of spring break with your doctor friends. Although I guess we're getting closer to summer. So like it's a, is there a word where we can take spring and summer together? Like sprummer? Sprummer break. Such a dad joke. Yeah, hashtag TM. Um, so <laughs> we were able to... F- feature a couple shows with uh, with us as interviews. We're going to do that one more time before we bring back new content next week, which by the way, Julie, do you know what next week is? I think I know. You better is not it, forget. Is it is it our anniversary? It's our one year anniversary. Oh. Year Doctor Friends. Well, technically it's what the health and then your Doctor Friends. But if you count all the episodes together, it's our one year anniversary of the show. So we are going to come back refreshed, ready to go. We've been planning content for longer than you can possibly imagine. And uh, it's going to be a killer. I we we're, we don't really do seasons on this show, um, mm-hmm. but we are, you know, a, a lot of the planning we've been doing has been talking about it. Like, what do we want to do in year two? Like, how do we want to take it to the next level? So yeah. we're excited to bring uh, everything that we did in the in the first year with your doctor friends, and then really take it up a notch with uh, with, with year two. And then I guess we should leave it out there that if there's any feedback for anything that people want to hear in year two. Now's the time to tell us because we're planning and we're on spring break and we can probably read because we have some time. So, uh, yeah, let us know. So with that, the episode today is going to be with Lucas Rockwood. It's the Lucas Rockwood show. Lucas is more known probably by his YouTube channel and his company called Yoga Body. Um, he's an interesting guy who does a lot of stuff in the wellness field, especially with yoga. But his podcast features experts in a lot of different fields. He just likes to learn. And, and a lot of it has to do with health and wellness. So I was on his show basically talking about, you know, non surgical approaches to injuries. And a lot of it was like injury prevention, how to manage yourself after you get an injury, why injuries happen. Um, and it was a really, really good conversation where he asked good questions and we we had good back and forth. So I look forward to sharing that. Hopefully you guys get some good information. We are so excited to be back live, but recorded next week. Jeremy has a brand new puka shell necklace that he wants to show all of you from this oh. vacation in Cabo. It makes me think of Abercrombie and Fitch. Boo. All right, we'll see you guys next week. We love you. Bye. Here's a common conundrum that happens with health and fitness. You get excited about some new exercise routine. Maybe it's a yoga class, a Pilates class. Maybe you start doing spinning classes or rowing classes, and you get sore, and you're getting results, and you're excited. And then one part of your soreness, like the inside of your knee, your MCL, it doesn't really recover after a couple of days, maybe even after a week, maybe it's getting a little worse. And now you're trying to figure out what to do. Do you take ibuprofen? Do you use ice? Do you stop exercising? Do you keep moving? Do you wear a brace? What are you supposed to do to heal? Now it's been three weeks. Now it's been six weeks. You can't really figure out what comes next. This is one of the challenges of soft tissue injuries. How much is too much? What interventions, ibuprofen, ice, or not, are helpful, which are harmful. Hopefully, we'll demystify some of this on this week's podcast. If you're new here, it's the Lucas Rockwood Show. I'm a yoga teacher and trainer. I'm a father and a serial entrepreneur. Firstly, I'm a student. I like to learn things, so I find medical doctors, researchers, authors, experts, and attempt to bring their best work here so we can all live more educated, informed lives. If you would like to support the show, just scroll down and leave a rating and review in whatever app you're listening on. I have a YouTube channel you might find interesting. Search Yoga Body on YouTube. 
I have a weekly email newsletter with updates about this show and my videos and my traveling teaching schedule at yogabody.com forward slash sign me up. And lastly, you can send in questions directly to me on Instagram. I'm at Lucas Rockwood. Welcome everyone, it's Lucas here. Today's show is called Non-Surgical Options for Injuries, Sports Injuries specifically. I'm here with Dr. Jeremy Allen. Dr. Allen is a board-certified sports medicine physician and he's based in Chicago. He's worked with professional sports teams as well as high school teams. He's actively involved in research, has his own podcast. You can find all of his work at rushortho.com and we'll link up to Jeremy's social sites in the show notes as well. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Lucas. Good to be here. People often, when they have an injury, whether it's an Achilles tendon tear, an ACL rupture, a meniscus thing, a rotator cuff in their shoulder, a lot of times people bifurcate into the non-surgical, surgical camp, and they have very strong beliefs about these things. Is that appropriate, or is every situation different? How do you, I know that you take mostly a non-surgical approach, but how do you help people think through the options? Yeah, I think it's a, a good place to start because uh, the vast majority of things that happen in the musculoskeletal world uh, should be handled non-surgically. Um, and I think, you know, maybe the, the the mainstream thought on that is probably backwards just because of what we see with media, especially with professional athletes. I think we're used to hearing about an injury, they get surgery, and then they come back. And so a lot of times we think, uh, you know, I probably need surgery for something. But, you know, the vast majority of things that present to an office, whether, um, especially in my office, are related to pain and dysfunction. Somebody's got pain, they can't do what they want to do, and they, they want to get back to doing their things actively. And so most of the time, that's not due to something structural, meaning something that's broken, torn, needs to be put back together. Most of the time, it's a combination of factors such as getting older or, or, or overusing something, or frequently, it's a biomechanical thing. Uh, we use a lot of car metaphors. You know, something's not uh, uh, acting the way it should, and you're using it incorrectly. And so I, I think for the most part, almost everything should be started with a non-surgical uh, lens on, and surgery really should only be used if it's absolutely necessary. One of the challenges that I find with people that I work with is they it's very difficult for them to separate pain relief and healing so people get injured they use ice or ibuprofen and their immediate response is it's getting better you know it happened four four hours ago nothing's getting better i know there are lots of different interventions that you advocate and work with that are pro healing and then some are pain relief you know the obvious one being cortisone shots these kinds of things can you talk about how pain, relief, and healing sometimes go together, but don't necessarily go together in what people need to understand? Yeah, we have this conversation a lot in the office. I, I say I, I separate, you know, symptoms from structure. Symptoms um, So from a lot structure. of times we'll get... Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so a lot of times we'll get imaging, right? So like people will get an x-ray mm. frequently if they come into our office or, you know, occasionally people get, a, you know, more advanced imaging, things like MRIs. And I find the majority of the time I'm actually talking people out of what's on those images as being a problem and more right. talking them into like, this is what's causing your pain and dysfunction. And ultimately speaking, if you did not have pain or if you were functioning and doing everything you wanted to do, you have much better things to do than sit in front of me today. You would have never come mm. in. And so my goal at the end of the day is not to make your imaging look better. My goal <laughs> yeah. is to make you feel better. And so we 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 have a saying in my practice, and 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 I did borrow this from from a colleague of mine, Dr. Bush Joseph, but we, we, we treat patients, not x-rays. Mm. We, we treat patients, not images. Let's unpack that a little bit. And if I understand correctly, what you're saying is sometimes you look at someone's knee or their spine and it just looks like a train wreck in the scan. And that doesn't necessarily reflect, although it might, their condition, their pain, their mobility. Is that accurate? 
Yeah, I, it is natural for our body to degenerate. Yeah, it is not abnormal to have an image that shows degeneration on mm. it when you get into your 30s, 40s, 50s, yeah. 60s. And so many times that has been communicated to people. And this is probably a weakness in the medical community, too, as we've learned more things that to see degeneration is is a problem and you should fix it. But in reality, it's not fixable. You can't go do a <laughs> surgery and make degeneration go back to the way it was before. Yeah. And so oftentimes, again, the concept here is when MRIs first came out, it was a lot of information. Mm. And then if you add arthroscopy to that, where people are doing the surgery and actually going into somebody's joint and doing it relatively minimally invasive, we, we were inundated with a lot of information about structure without a lot of data on what it meant. And now we have 20, 30, 40 years of that data. And what we've learned is mm. that we can't really make the structure go back to what it's not a renovation of your house. You can't just have like a crumbling foundation, bring in somebody and get a new foundation. Mm. You know, at the end of the day, the structure is going to degenerate, but it doesn't mean it, it needs to have symptoms. I, we have professional athletes who get images all the time, especially when it comes to like contracts and things mm. like that. And there are some of these images that, that look like people who have much older knees than you would ever think were playing a professional sport yeah. or much older ankles than somebody playing a professional sport and they have no pain and they function. And so the concept is, is what is on this image does not need to be painful and probably took years to look like this mm. and you were functioning fine up until recently. So pain is almost the end of the line, right? You had pain, you came to the office, yeah. but you've been like this for longer. What I need to do is take you, let's just say your symptoms started three months ago. Mm. My goal needs to be to take you and put you back to four months ago when you would have never come to see me. And that can happen through lots of modalities like physical therapy. And then you already mentioned, like there's injections and things we can do. But what we're trying to do is make you have a better quality of life. One thing that I struggle with is trying to think through lack of use, appropriate use and overuse, it seems like there's so such a wide range. And an example would be, mm -hmm. you know, let's say we took three people, let's say they're all 50 years old. One has done completely inactive, completely sedentary. One is moderately active. And then one is just kind of abusive on their body, like ultra marathoner, hundred plus miles a week kind of thing for many, many years. And then we have them all go do something extreme, like, uh, I don't know, four hours of aerobic activity on their knees, like running up and down hills or something like that. You know, the inactive person, their knees are almost certainly going to hurt. Maybe that ultra marathoners knees have been hurting forever. Maybe the middle person where, where I'm going with this is, do you have any indication from your research and your patient work? Do you have, or, or hypothesis or something about what is appropriate use for something like, um, uh, highland cartilage for something like, uh, your meniscus for something like your labrum in your hip is any idea about where, where people fall? It's an awesome question. Um, I spend a lot of my day talking to people about activity just in general. Most people want to get back to activity yeah. or they want to know how much activity to do. And I think really what your question hit on is it's a very difficult thing to measure. You know, it's not it's not something where you can tell and send somebody home and say, you know, just follow these three measurable guidelines and you can definitely know that you're doing the right amount of activity. Everybody's body is different. Everybody's activities are different. You know, certainly wearable technology has tried to tap into this market mm. to try to figure out ways to, 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 to measure it, but it's very, very difficult. What I think is pretty obvious is that the, the sedentary not moving around is not good for anything. Yeah. It's not good for your health. It's not good for highland cartilage. Yeah. So the, the, the person who's not doing any sort of movement, we spend a lot of time counseling that we need to get you moving in some form or fashion. Mm. Um, and, and that is, 
you know, completely separate from any form of like weight loss or anything like that. I actually really adamantly try to emphasize that because I think sometimes people getting on scales prevents them from even maintaining activity. They get frustrated and they stop being active. You just need to be moving during the day. Now, the person that you mentioned the latter person, the one that's running ultra marathons and maybe, uh, you know, putting a lot of pressure on their joints. We see that person all the time and they're at risk for overuse injuries, yeah. but we actually don't have great data that they're necessarily destroying their cartilage. I see. Um, there, there's been some interesting studies recently that have looked into this and yeah, it's really unknown whether running, which is the one that maybe gets the most attention, yeah. causes joint degeneration because there's plenty of runners who don't have joint degeneration as they get older and we know that impact exercise is really important for bone density health and that's why you know especially older women are you know recommended impact exercises Mm. they get older to prevent osteoporosis cartilage itself likes to have impact to it to then come back stronger the same way we do when we train and then we know that if we you know take some time off we come back stronger um and so finding that happy medium is really the biggest thing for me and what i usually tell people is uh, i've never met under trained athletes i've only met under recovered athletes and so Hmm. let me make sure i said that correctly i've never met an under trained athlete I've only met under-recovered athletes. Yeah. And so the issue becomes is that people tend to have an activity that they like to do. In this case, you said ultra-marathon, so that person's going to like to run. Yeah. We see a lot of people doing high-intensity interval exercise, mm-hmm. especially at these like boutique gyms. Um, and things, yeah. yeah, and it involves a lot of like squats and lunges mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and, and that kind of thing. And again, we never discourage people from being active. Exercise is fantastic. Yeah. But I use the metaphor of like the the battery on your cell phone. Mm. You know, you drain that battery and then if you don't let it recover back to where it was before, every day you're taking out a little bit of that battery. You know, if it goes from 100% to 25% and then you let it get back to 75%, well, then that same amount's going to get it down to lower and lower and lower and lower over time. And eventually that's what leads to overuse injuries. And so my recommendation to people is to do a lot of periodization, mm. meaning that in reality, if you are someone who likes to run, you probably shouldn't be running seven days a week, yeah. right? You probably need to be running and then the next day be doing, doing some form of cross training. Mm. And honestly, what I really try to focus on for my runners is strength training. Runners hate strength mm. training because it's not running and it doesn't give them that same endorphin high of yeah. running. That, that, that And so if I can get them to convince them to do some form of like band-based strength strength exercise or, or even yoga, I know that you're big in the yoga yeah. world, like anything that involves kind of postural strength where they're using their core and using their, their glutes and things like that, they're going to be running a lot longer. For the average person, so like the not ultra marathon runner, yeah. but maybe somebody who is exercising at a local gym, I, I basically say you shouldn't be going to the gym and doing the same thing two days in a row. And if you just kind of avoid that, you'll probably be okay. We're set up for failure here in the United States with this because a lot of the boutique gyms you buy packages to. So you'll buy like an unlimited package or you'll buy some sort of like, I have 15 sessions to use in a month. And so the concept is I just need to use them to get the value out of it. And you also think you're being healthy because you're working Mm. out, which I can't deny. But, you know, you go six days in a row to the local boutique gym that has you doing squatting, lunging, uh, the the treadmill and then some sort of rowing. And I'm like, you're doing a bunch of linear activities like your kneecap's going to be so upset at you by the Mm. end of that. I see so much kneecap pain after those things. It's just you got a period. You got to have periods where you're doing other alternative exercise. I guess there's that onboarding period too. And again, if we take an average middle-aged person who's been sedentary for a long time, 
that onboarding, that tissue loading period might be months, might be a year, right? Before the, you know, whereas somebody who's trained, maybe they can go in and do that F45 or that Orange Theory or that CrossFit thing. And it's a, it's a moderate workout for them and they can squat and jump around all day. But if somebody's going from nothing to, to, like you said, you know, five days a week, suddenly that's, that's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of volume to go from nothing. There's a, um, it's the new year's, uh, it's the new year's resolution. <laughs> yeah. We, Valentine's we, Day we actually did a new year's resolution, uh, a series, uh, on our podcast. Mm. And, and one of them was exercise because, you know, right around January, February, everybody gets motivated because yeah. they're going to be a new them. So that's when you see a lot of overuse injuries where people go too fast. Like you mentioned, there's this paper that's being passed around the internet and, um, I don't know if it's accurate or not, but I'd love to hear your input. And it's showing, I believe it's female soccer players, collegiate soccer players, and they have an actual thicker ACL in season than out of season. And I'm kind of coming back to the same thing. If you were to biopsy a sedentary 50-year-old male and you were to take some extreme guy like David Goggins or something and actually look at their <laughs> ACL or their meniscus, would you expect to see thicker, more resilient cartilage? Is that is that an overreach or do we not really know? Or You know, I think... If you controlled for all variables, I think that wouldn't be an unrealistic expectation to say that somebody who is providing stress yeah. to a body part mm. will have a more resilient body part. The same way if you applied it yeah. to an individual who is able to take a lot of stress and then come back from that stress. Yeah. So we know that from you know young children who are put through very, very difficult situations, some of them come out res very resilient. Mm. And, and we don't 100% know why that happens, but the same thing would happen with the body. Yeah. If you if you throw that load at it over and over and over again, the resiliency of that would probably be higher. The things that you can't 100% control for are genetics. Genes play such a huge role in this, and, and, and a lot of it we don't know, right? I, I think some of it we do, but ultimately speaking, there's a huge genetic component to this that, that somebody who wants to be you know, like a, a multiple marathon runner because they want to be may not have the genetic capabilities of being a multiple marathon runner, no matter what we do for you. And you may actually be causing harm to yourself because of that. Um, I, I think the other thing is different environments. So where you are in the world. So in terms of like topography, mm. diet, sure. um, you know, overall exposures, yeah all of those things probably play a role. And again, so there's a lot of very confounding variables, Yeah, but I do think your statement is not unreasonable. With the genetics thing, if you had to hypothesize, do you think it's a, uh, they're starting ahead? Do you think it's a recovery capacity? Is it potentially all of the above or? I definitely think it's all of the mm. above. I mean, I think when you look at professional athletes, <laughs> whether it be a professional runner, uh, ultra marathon runner, or a professional NBA basketball player, when they walk through the door, they just look. Different. <laughs> uh, um, I, I sometimes say that if I could borrow an NBA athlete just to walk around with me in clinic and see my youth athletes with yeah. me, I think I'd have a little bit more perspective on like, should we be trying to put my kid into a professional sport? Because again, like there's a different protoplasm that's going on in these, in these characteristics. Yeah. And I think that they have some data on this that, you know, there's really interesting data on like the sprinters coming out of like Jamaica, uh -huh. right? Yeah. And and kind of like the genetics that play a role sure. in that, and and they're just naturally faster because of some of these genetic differences. Yeah. Um, so the the short answer is yes. I think that some people just start out ahead. Yeah. When people get injured, whether it's an ankle, whether it's a rotator cuff, whatever it is, it's really difficult also to differentiate between muscle pain and other connective tissues, tendons, ligaments, cartilage, etc. And you know everybody's done a hardcore gym workout a leg day or something and you know they've been in dire pain for 48 hours and then no pain no gain 
on Friday they feel stronger. And they, that was great. And they, yeah. they'll, they'll apply the same kind of logic to like, uh, I don't know, their MCL or meniscus. How do you help people think about these tissues differently? Because the, the healing recovery time is so wildly different, right? Yeah, I mean, I think what you're hitting on a concept of, you know, breaking down tissue to then build back stronger versus a legitimate injury. Um, and so right. when you're talking to somebody about the difference between those two things Sore versus injury, yeah, yeah, we, we, we need to, you know, anytime we go and work out. So if you go do a bunch of bench press, you kind of, you tear muscle. I mean, that's kind of normal. Yeah. Right. And so then it has to recover and given proper recovery, it comes back stronger mm. with injury. So you mentioned MCL meniscus, any sort of thing like that. It has there's been a structural change to a tissue that needs time to return back to a normal structural purpose. So an MCL provides stability to the inside part of the knee. Mm. And if it is stretched to the point where it has tearing in it, it's not going to provide that support to the inside part of the knee. And when you go to stress your knee, so such as twisting or or doing some form of like quick change of direction, mm. it's not going to provide you that ability to do that with confidence and keep going, even if the acute pain has gone down. Many injuries fall into kind of like a, a three phase situation. I, I talk about this with acute injuries all the mm. time, whether it be an ankle sprain or an MCL sprain or or some sort of muscle hamstring injury. But, you know, the first phase is usually that acute phase where where it's, it hurts. Sometimes there's swelling, there's bruising. It's a pretty obvious phase. Like the person who has it knows they're injured. People around them know they're sure. injured. And generally speaking, it's a relatively predictable phase that within one to two weeks, that acute pain tends to go down pretty significantly. Yeah. And so... That's the easy part, I say, because that's the measurable part. The second phase is, okay, well, my acute pain is gone, but I still have intermittent symptoms, mm. meaning that I still get pain or dysfunction. I also can't do the things I want to do. So this is the difficult phase when you're talking about getting somebody back to something because yeah. it's incredibly difficult to measure and everybody's different. Sure. And in, in addition, it, everybody's going back to different activities. And so, you know, for a standard MCL sprain, like that could be two weeks for a minor one, yeah. like that second phase, it could be 10 weeks, depending sure. on whether somebody's going back to like football or they're going back to just going to an elliptical. Yeah. Um, and so what I usually counsel people is we do it gradually and we gradually expose you to more and more. And a lot of times, at least in the United States, this is done under the guidance of physical therapy and certainly around the world with physiotherapists mm. to try to basically increase the amount that you can do uh, and, and, and have that measured. The last phase, which not everybody needs to get to, but is also a very difficult phase, is getting back to a higher level of activity. So if somebody wants to get back to riding a bike, we can get them back to riding a bike. But if they want to ride right. 45 miles and also <laughs> do it as part of a triathlon, like yeah. I have patients who come back and say, I don't have pain. I can do everything I want to do. But when I go to ride my 45 miles, like around mile 30, it's just my, my knee does not feel like it felt like before. Mm. And that, as a physician, is a very difficult place to be because, again, generally speaking, that's not a structural problem. That's not something you're going to say, yeah, let's do an injection for that or let's put a brace on it. Yeah. Or, you know, you need surgery or that's going to even show up on an MRI. A lot of times that's a performance based thing that requires a biomechanical assessment mm. and things that we do in that area. One thing that I can never really figure out is like joint laxity. So let's talk about an ankle that rolls repeatedly, shoulders that dislocate. Um, you know, somebody's got a rotator cuff. 
Is it possible to restore the stability of, let's say someone's rolled their ankle four times like I have, or they've, they have shoulders. I had a student <laughs> who had really young, I think she was 19 and she dislocated both of her shoulders and it was just a recurring mm-hmm. problem. What is, what is the long-term outlook for something like that? Yeah. So you've presented a couple different ways to get joint laxity. So there's, there's the, I rolled my ankle a few times, so yeah. you weren't lax before and now you're lax Correct. because you've disrupted tissue. Yeah. There's also, I was born with lax joints. Sure. Um, EDS, and right, so that's yeah. a genetic condition. Yeah. Um, and you don't necessarily have to have a diagnosis. Some of the more famous ones are like Ehlers-Danlos and things yeah. like that. But you certainly can just have loose joints and not have a diagnosis. And so ultimately, what it comes down to is if you have a loose joint, most of the time that's secondary to the ligaments and the, and the, and the capsule, yeah. which are the two kind of things that we can't control, mm. not providing the support to the joint to keep it where it is. Yeah. And so what I usually tell people is the only way that we can intervene on that without necessarily trying to reconstruct anything, so surgically trying to make something more stable, mm. is for you to control what you can control. And the things that we can control are the musculature. Mm. So you use shoulder, for example. Yeah. The most common shoulder dislocation is an anterior dislocation mm-hmm. where the shoulder comes out forward. Yeah. If you take your hand and you put it on the front of somebody's shoulder and you put them in that position, they feel better because you've given them stability. Mm -hmm. The front aspect of the shoulder that we can control includes the um, subscapularis, which is the rotator cuff, right? So if you can make your front aspect of the rotator cuff stronger and have more dynamic control in different you know, ranges of motion, you can provide stability. Some people, especially if they have very, very loose joints or we know from data and shoulder dislocations that if you dislocate your joint at a young age you know probably before the age of 21 Mm. the incidence of re-dislocation is incredibly high and so sometimes that's going to need a joint stability surgery i see ankles very rarely need surgery Um, so you roll your ankle four times you very rarely need to have that surgically stabilized The difference with ankles is it's weight bearing compared to a shoulder. So I find the vast majority of people who continuously have ankle stability problems lack a lot of proprioception, which for the listeners is basically not being able to control your joint without looking at it. Like if you closed your eyes, you can tell me where your ankle is right now, but can you control it dynamically as you're moving? And so we put people through very, very, very comprehensive kind of proprioceptive training programs, neuromuscular stuff Mm. that I'm sure you've covered before. Neuromuscular is a, a... you know, like a hot term in what we're um, treating people, because I think the neurologic system gets overlooked a lot in musculoskeletal medicine. Yeah. You know, like we we have muscles that fire, we use them, but the firing comes from the neurologic system, from your brain. And if you don't have a good connection and certainly injury can disrupt that connection, you're not going to have the performance you had before. A protocol I often hear for ligaments, tendons, injuries, recovery is isometric, eccentric concentric over a span of weeks, probably months. Is that sort of bro science pop culture? Is there some validity to that? Is that an oversimplification or? You'd like to think it's an oversimplification because we have population based data. So whenever someone like myself comes on and loves to say the word like studies show that (laughs) that study is a, you know, is a population based study that's meant to give us information. But I always tell patients you weren't you weren't in that study. So I have to take a population based study and individualize it to you. And so when you talk about somebody having a, you know, a rehab type protocol, you want to individualize it to the person as much as possible. Mm. But I do think on a generic scale, you know, concentric exercise when it comes to rehabbing an injury tends to be the least 
helpful. Mm. And, and the reason for that is it's not functional. We do very few things in our life with a concentric, meaning ah. bringing the muscle into a shorter position. Almost everything we do that involves some sort of performance, whether it be athletic or, or whatnot, involves actually loading the tendon at a longer tensile strength. So like you're trying to yeah. get full range of motion with force through that range hmm. of motion. So that's what I we really try to emphasize is we want full range of motion. So that should be full range of motion. You doing it, hmm. you know, actively yeah. full range of motion passively. And then the third component and the hardest component is can you load that range of motion, you know, uh, throughout. And that's the frustrating part when you treat like hamstring strains yeah. and anybody who's watched a baseball game or follows a baseball team will know that guy that's been out for like 12 weeks with a hamstring, which is so frustrating, yeah. and you do everything correctly, and they come back, they're in their first game, they run down to first base, they stretch out, and they pull it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, what, would, what could we have done differently? <laughs> yeah. But it's just that when you put that eccentric load through the muscle tendon complex, mm. it just can't handle it because it's not loading all the way through. Sure. Last question for you, Jeremy. What is the biggest when you have people – failing or re-injuring you know the the baseball player you know with all the best intentions re-pulling that re-injuring that hamstring um maybe more for a pedestrian a non-athlete population what is the biggest fail point that just uh you know grinds your gears in terms of if you only waited one more week or if you only laid off the pills or what what, what is a, something that you see happen a lot yeah i definitely think um it, it's certainly a lack of um patients in that mm. second phase that I talked sure. about. Um, and, and I don't actually put this all on the patient. Um, if we're, if this is being managed by a, a physician, we'll call that person a patient. Uh -huh. Um, it, I also, I often see second, third, fourth, fifth, 10th opinions on patients for specific conditions. Mm. And what I usually find is also, it hasn't been particularly emphasized or communicated to that patient that they need to go gradually and be loading it slowly mm. and it's going to take longer than they thought. And some of that comes down to probably not wanting to disappoint the patient. You know, the patient has no pain in the office. We examine them. They look really good. And we want to be like, you're great. We did a good job. You can go back to do whatever you want. And then they pull it again. And yeah. so by the time they see me, they're like, I've just been dealing with this for a year and it's off and on. I get better and then I get worse and I get better and I get worse. And so mm. what I usually tell people is, it's always going to take longer than what you thought it was. Mm. Um, and I think that's starting to make its way into pop culture yeah. when people look through professional athletes. I think one of the most common things, comments I get because I take care of professional athletes when people want to ask me questions is, why is it taking so long? <laughs> yeah. Why are they out for so long? Yeah. And in reality, it probably was that they were coming back too soon before. Yeah. Um, and so now everybody is kind of under the impression like it takes a while to get back there. So I would encourage anybody who is going through an injury or trying to come back from something to do it in a very measurable, gradual way. What you want to know is I added this activity. I did it at this amount and it caused more symptoms. So I know exactly what caused more symptoms and I can pull back from that but not also be inactive because physicians are way too quick to tell people to stop being active when they have an injury because that's what they've been schooled on and it is not good for anything we learned that through all of the data in terms of you know you used to when you get a surgery like a knee replacement you used to be on your bed for like a week mm. and now we have people up the same day yeah. right yeah, yeah. going home and 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 up and moving and that that is the case with almost every surgery his bed rest is terrible. You should be moving mm. as much as possible. And that's the same with injury. Yeah. When somebody comes to see me and has an injury and they say, should I be doing activity? I always say, I always err on the side of being active. Yeah. I don't want you to 
necessarily cause more harm to the condition. And I think we should be using symptoms as a guide. But I, I, I don't want you pulling back on activity so much that you're not being active. That's not good for you physically. It's not good for you psychologically. And it's not good for your health overall. Um, I know that I said that was the last question, but one more I forgot to ask. You. Are you finding people using these off-label peptides? I forget the one, BPs. BPC-157 or something like this. These weird things make their way around online and people are ordering stuff from weird, you know, chemical research places. Um, so the, to specifically answer your question and then broadly answer yeah. it, to specifically answer it, I have received questions yeah. about it. I do not think it comes up very often, at least in my office, of somebody actually taking yeah. it. To broadly answer your question, everybody's always looking for the secret antidote yeah. to get better. And we have done... What I would say is a relatively poor job in the evidence-based health community of creating a welcoming space for people. So they go and find the non-evidence-based wellness facility <laughs> that's going to tell them that they can get better. Yeah. And it has created this niche of people who create fake medicine. Yeah. Um, and it's incredibly difficult to bring people back from that. Mm. So ultimately, at the end of the day, the use of these things tends to be far ahead of the science. Yeah. And when people have access to them, it's very difficult for people to then get into studies to de develop the science. Yeah. If somebody has pain and dysfunction and I say, listen, you could join this study and there's a 50 percent chance you wouldn't get the peptides. They're like, well, I could just go buy the peptides. Why wouldn't I just go do that? <laughs> yeah. And you're like, because I want to know if it works. Yeah. And they're like, it's not about you. It's about me. And I'm you're I'm like, you're right. It is about you and not me. So it, 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 that that is the pervasive challenge. Yeah. But we continue to take on that challenge. Mm. And the more data we get, we tend to, um, uh, you know, be able to communicate to patients better about what they can and can't take. The number one thing I tell somebody when they ask me questions. So if somebody if, if you were specifically asking me about these peptides, yeah. the number one thing I'd want to say back to you is what's the harm? And so I would look that yeah. up. I use examine.com quite mm. a bit. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that reference, but they're a very good non-partial subscription-based model that takes no money from anybody. Mm. I get no money from them for saying yeah. that. They are, but they have a lot of great um, evidence-based data on things like um, supplements and and things like this to basically say, are you harming yourself? What's the potential benefit? What's the potential risks? Yeah. Great conversation, Jeremy. For people who are listening, tell them where they can find you online and what you're uh, what you're excited about this year. Yeah. So uh, as Lucas mentioned, I'm a sports medicine provider in Chicago, Illinois. So RushOrtho.com is my practice website. Um, if you're looking for me on social media, Jeremy Allen, M-D, A-L-L-A-N-D is the last name uh, on Instagram. Um, we do have a podcast, Your Doctor Friends Podcast, me and my colleague, Dr. Julie Bruni. We're on social media, your underscore doctor underscore friends on Instagram, and then your doctorfriendspodcast.com. Our podcast really is just trying to make it so that people can and get evidence-based, easy, approachable answers to the questions you are already texting all your doctors. <laughs> um, and so instead of having to Google or get random information, you come check us out. Our most recent episode was on gluten mm. and another one on Ozempic. Yeah. Um, and uh, hopefully people can go and check that out. Great information. Really appreciate what you're doing. And I appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much. Let's keep in touch. Yeah. Appreciate it, Lucas. You've probably noticed that in the past couple of years, yoga, breathing, pranayama, breathwork of all types has exploded in popularity. Right about the time when my TED talk on breathing dropped, it seemed like the whole world got the bug at the same time as me and everyone's interested in breathing. The challenge is that 
most people who subscribe to Yoga Body, most of our listeners who are interested in breathing, they're looking for stress management. They're looking for improved sleep, boosted digestion, energy balance. They're not looking to hold their breath for seven minutes. They don't want to swim under a frozen lake. They're not looking for cold exposure or Guinness Book of World Records. Most people that I meet and I talk to, they're looking for ways to, to, to control their nervous system that are safe and accessible and really effective. Yoga breathing really offers that. Meditation and other seated practices can be really intimidating and the follow through is really low. Yoga breathing is not intimidating at all and the compliance, the follow through is really, really high. That's why our breathing coaches are so successful. They're working from home on Zoom. They're teaching in yoga studios, CrossFit boxes, fitness centers and gyms. And many of them are actually working with corporate clients to help people manage their stress. This breath coach training is such a unique and exciting program. We go over the anatomy, the physiology of breath. We also cover the business and marketing of being a breath coach, and we give you all the tools you need to go from zero to setting up your own breath coaching business in the span of 12 days. To learn more about the program, please go to breathcoachtraining.com, and I hope you can join us. We have a nutritional question related to joint health today from Betty. Betty says, Lucas, I have been trying to improve the inflammation caused by my osteoarthritis that mainly shows up in my knees and my hips, but it's starting to show up in other joints as well. I'm 78 years old. From a dietary perspective, I'm emphasizing bone broth, which I am eating every day. I wish I could say I make it, but I'm usually buying store-bought, but high quality bone broth. And I'm also trying to eat mostly whole foods and and meat on bone to try to get cartilage and collagen in my diet. Do you think this is helpful? Sounds like you're eating healthful foods. When it comes to healing and when it comes to nutrition, there is this trend towards nutrientism or mm, one solutionism, and I'm very prone to this as well. And for a lot of years, well, for, for a couple of years, there were even books called The Bone Broth Miracle. I think we had the author on the podcast. And there's some interesting things about bone broth. There's interesting things about vegetable broth. There's interesting things about raw liver. There's uh, very worrying things about raw liver. And so I, it sounds like you're doing great things. That's the first thing I want to say. It, it's also very unlikely that eating bone broth is going to fix your arthritis. However, it could be contributing. And I think this is the important thing to think about when it comes to health and wellness. It's very often not just the one thing. Sometimes it is. We get lucky. But usually it's multiple things. So it's the sleep and it's the exercise and it's the nutrition and it's the hydration and it's the micronutrients. All of these little things, these micronutrients and micro activities combined, they can often help to alleviate symptoms. But it sounds like you're doing great things. I just wouldn't want to encourage you not to put too much leverage, too, too much stock into just one of the action items that you're doing. Keep going. Aaron on Instagram has a question about knees. I thought it would be relevant for today's podcast. Aaron says, Lucas, I found the knees over toes guy on Instagram and his videos and his demonstrations were incredible. So I tried using his program to heal my knee pain and unfortunately it got worse. I know that yoga teachers always say never bend your knee past your ankle, but knees over toes guy says that's the key to healing. I can't figure out who's right. All I know is my knees are not getting better when I try knees not over toes or knees over over toes. Can you help me figure out who's right? Knees Over Toes guy is an interesting character, author, expert online. If you haven't seen him, he has a whole knee healing and strengthening protocol, primarily geared towards athletes. 
Aaron, which is what I want to mention. Athletes' bodies are built differently. Their resilience and recovery is different. Uh, their training load and volume capacity is different. Not that all of us could not fall into that category where we're training that way. Maybe not performing that way, but training that way. But m- most of us don't. Here's the thing about knees over your toes. Your knees can certainly bend past your toes, even with load, even with a child or a barbell on your back. If you watch b-boys or dancers, if you watch, yeah, all kinds of people, parkour people, you know, our, our body's capable of all kinds of different things. The question is, what is the risk versus reward? What do I mean by that? Well, let's say that you decided the best physical activity in the world was plyometrics, but even simplified, just jumping. Let's say you decide you just want to jump, like jumping rope, except forget about the rope. You're just going to jump as high as you can for 15 minutes per day. There's a really, really high likelihood, Aaron, that your knees and or your ankles, maybe even your back are going to get really sore. Uh, maybe even injured or damaged. Does that mean that jumping is not correct? No, jumping is amazing. In fact, many of us could really benefit, probably me too, from some plyometrics jumping training, but it's really dose dependent. And so this is where it comes in. For some people, learning to train knees over toes can be really beneficial. I think the important thing is to, to frame this with the desired outcome. So knees over toes guys trying to slam dunk and do extreme athletics and the split squats and all kinds of things, amazing things, inspiring things. And a lot of us are trying to move around life pain-free and the objective really does matter when you're looking at risk versus reward. So oftentimes you'll hear yoga teachers cue, don't bend your knee past your ankle, not because it's wrong, just because we often work in a more conservative range. In the same way, you'll hear someone say, lift the box up off the floor with your legs. It's not that lifting with your back is wrong. It's just that for most of us, it's not worth the risk to lift with our back. With all of these things, there is sometimes a time and a place to learn how to lift with your back or learn how to bend your knees past your toes. When you're dealing with an injury, I would generally, my my personal perspective is to really err on the side of caution. And so reduce those more extreme ranges of motion, lessen load, lessen max range. But there are different ways to approach things with different results. And I guess I would default back to what you said is it didn't work for you. Obviously, it's working for a lot of people. But if it didn't work for you, I would revert back to something that's a little more conservative. Thanks for listening to The Lucas Rockwood Show. If you enjoy the podcast, I have two asks of you. Number one, share the show on social media with your friends and tag me. My handle is at Lucas Rockwood. Number two is please leave a rating and review in whatever app you're listening on. And last but not least, before you go, if you'd like to be on my mailing list, every week I send out information about the podcast, behind the scenes stuff, announcements of online classes and special events. I email about once a week. You can do that at yogabody.com forward slash sign me up. And right now we have a free breathing worksheet on that page as well. It's yogabody.com forward slash sign me up. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week.